everyone, and welcome to this special podcast from Melbourne's RuxCon Breakpoint Security Conference. I'm Patrick Gray. This podcast is a joint production of The Register and Risky Business, and it's brought to you by Packet Loop, Big Data Security, post-exploitation detection in the cloud. So head to packetloop.com to sign up for the beta. You're about to hear an interview I did with Barnaby Jack, a security researcher with IOActive. Barnes is probably best known for his work on ATM security. He famously jackpotted an ATM live on stage at Black Hat in 2010. But if he were to do a live demo of his latest research, he'd probably wind up in prison. He's been looking at implantable defibrillators and pacemakers. And as it turns out, they have wireless interfaces that allow you to connect to them. And you can bypass their rudimentary authentication and start sending 830-volt zaps into your victim's heart, which... uh, obviously isn't ideal. Barnaby Jack says these techniques that he has developed could be used for targeted assassinations, or perhaps even more worryingly, a maliciously motivated person could actually create an automatically propagating worm or virus designed to kill people. It could spread from device to device. It's heavy stuff. So here is Barnaby Jack talking about his research into implantable medical devices. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, so I've uh, started to concentrate on medical devices. Um, Some previous research was based on insulin pumps, and I decided to look into implantable devices. So um, I looked into pacemakers and ICDs from one particular manufacturer. And just to cut to the chase, the uh, end result of the research is basically being able to completely overwrite the firmware um, on uh, any of these manufacturers' devices as well as actually send jolts to the ICDs, which is uh, up to an 830-volt shock. Um, and, and, and an ICD is like an implantable defibrillator, right? Right. So it's similar to a pacemaker. Um, it still has a pacing capability, but it also has the ability to, uh, to shock the heart. And it's, essentially it will predict when you're going to go into cardiac arrest and, um, and uh, give a jolt to the heart to prevent it. So, I mean, really there was not much security on these devices at all. From what I understand, the only authentication that these things use is the serial number and the model number, which should be secret, but you can actually enumerate them from the device and then just authenticate and do whatever you want, right? Right. So the authentication is a serial number and the model number, but um, these are implantable devices, and I... And there needs to be an emergency way for physicians to actually be able to communicate with these devices. And if they are, if they had lost track of the model number or the serial number, um, they have to have some way to access it. So there was a, uh, I guess, a secret command or some hidden functionality which would actually allow you to send a uh, raw packet out and any ICD and pacemaker within range, say 30, 40, 50 feet, uh, would actually respond with its model number and its serial number. And now you can authenticate to any device and actually interrogate those devices. Now, in the case of a defibrillator, that means that you can send a potentially fatal shock to the victim's heart. Uh, What about with the pacemakers? What's the worst you can do there? Just sort of turn them off, I guess? Uh, well, I mean, you can... Or, or speed up someone's heart rate to whatever you want, get them into that whole techno feel? Right, well, you can... I mean, I'm, I'm no physician, so I don't really know all the ins and outs of, the, uh, of what the different parameters for, um, for a pacemaker are, but uh, you, can make, you can change any setting you want on the pacemaker. You can rewrite the firmware entirely. Um, 
you know, I, I don't really know the specifics, but uh, I can... It's not good, I think, is what you're getting at, right? <laughs> yeah, so... As you said, sometimes, you know, doctors need to be able to interface to these things on an emergency basis, which obviously puts a few obstacles up in terms of authentication. What's the, you know, what's the solution here? Because, you know, if someone's rushed to hospital, you don't want them, you know, being able to, you know, you don't want them failing to save a patient's life because they don't know the password, you know. So, so what, what is the solution here? Uh, you know, it's a tricky question. Um, I, I think... There really needs to be a redesign of these devices, and I think um, for coming up with an ultimate solution, at least get some sort of secure methodology in place. So, uh, you know, start implementing encryption to at least prevent a few different styles of attacks, like replay attacks. Personally, I would like to see them actually uh, go back in time a little bit and um, implement uh, near-field communication to actually wake up these devices. So this would require a physician actually... Uh, be within a sort of a 10 centimeter range of the heart I mean of the implant to actually um, allow programming I just don't I don't really see the need for a 50 foot range of uh, communication because this is the thing isn't it I mean you outlined that in your presentation but there's this emix protocol which actually allows communication from I think the spec is about 30 feet so you can actually hit these things from 30 feet away and I'm sure if you had the right antenna set up you could probably expand that out a little bit so Part of the solution, I guess, would be to only allow interaction with that device from very close physical proximity. Right. Um, and they actually they still support inductive telemetry, and inductive telemetry is actually this near-field communication. And so they actually have, they have like backward support to still be able to do this. These devices can be reflashed remotely over any of these protocols they're using, whether it's MIX, EMIX, or the um, inductive telemetry. So they can actually, they could disable this... Uh, this long-range communication if need be. But hang on, you know, let's just back it up for a second. Why the hell do you actually need a wireless interface in a device like this? I would have thought it's the sort of thing that you implant into, a, into someone's body and you wouldn't really need to be able to reconfigure it or write to that device. Why, why is that allowed at all? I would have thought that would be an easy fix. Is, you know, you really just need the telemetry from the device. You shouldn't need to modify it uh, once it's up and running or, or, or is that a requirement for these things? Um, I mean, the main reason uh, that they implemented this functionality is basically the convenience factor. So it just basically saves trips to the physician's office. So you can lie in bed, have a bedside transmitter a few meters away. Uh, the bedside transmitter interrogates your pacemaker or your ICD. It reads that data, sends it over the telephone line to the physician. The physician can uh, read the results and, you know, give you a call if you actually need to come into the, uh, into the doctor's office or not. So it's, it just saves um, regular checkups. The thing is they can still implement this functionality with inductive telemetry. They just, it would just require that... Um, You'd hold something towards your chest. But, I mean, that's, we're talking about one-way telemetry. Why the hell are these... Why, why can you write to these devices? Is there a good reason? They, they do need a way to uh, upgrade the software on these devices. I mean, if there's a malfunctioning device or if, they, uh, or if there's some sort of flaw in the code... Um, they need to be able to update it, but they also need to modify the settings on these devices, you know, and it's, that's all based in their flash memory as well. So all the parameters have to be able to be modified on the fly. Now, the most alarming bit of your talk was the idea that you could actually create a worm because these things have a transmit and receive uh, uh, capability. You could actually implant malicious code on one of these devices that would then propagate to other devices within range. Uh, I mean, am I reading that correctly? Is that, is that what you were saying is possible? Yeah, I mean, it's potentially possible. Uh, 
these devices, devices, as you say, they both transmit and they receive. You could potentially load malicious code on a pacemaker, which would send the same exploit to any other pacemaker within range. Uh, that pacemaker sends it to another ICD. That ICD could potentially send it to a programmer, and the list, you know, it just uh, it goes on and on. And then eventually, I mean, if enough people sort of come within physical proximity of each other, you could have like, you know, on April 10, 2014, you know, give this person a zap and then that's bad. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a worst case scenario for sure. Let's talk about regulation for a moment. Where, where, does, where does the regulation of these devices stand? Because I understand the FDA gives approval for these things to be taken to market, which sort of uh, prevents the, the companies that are offering these things from sale from being liable because it is FDA approved. I mean, is that correct? Uh, yeah, well, the FDA, they've always... So, I mean, it, it kind of seems like a bit of an oxymoron, but they've always said that they care about safety and not security of these devices, meaning that they um, they care more about the uh, sort of the hardware safety mechanism. So mechanism, so that the motor's turning correctly, for instance, to dispense drugs. Uh, they just don't have the expertise on staff to actually um, to be able to give a worthwhile code audit and actually give an approval that this device is actually secure in that way. And very recently, the Government Accountability Office actually contacted myself and Kevin Fu and a few other um, people who are working in this field. And they want the FDA to actually consider uh, malicious attacks on these devices being a possibility. And the FDA is yet to formally respond, but uh, it looks that they will be requiring that these devices uh, be audited and hopefully by third parties because the FDA just simply wouldn't be able to handle that task. But from the look of things now, like if something's FDA approved, it sort of indemnifies the vendor from any responsibility if something goes sideways, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, no, there was actually a, a legal case, uh, I think, in 2008, where someone tried to uh, sue Medtronic because a catheter had actually exploded in his leg. And it could have been worse <laughs> with a catheter, but anyway. It could have been worse, but the outcome of this uh, court case was, was big because it was... The Supreme Court actually ruled that the manufacturer has no uh, liability over a malfunctioning device if it's been FDA approved. And removing manufacturer liability essentially removes a very strong sort of uh, you know, consumer safeguard for the ability to actually um, give these manufacturers repercussions for a sort of shoddy code. And really, what's the, what's the ultimate goal of all of this stuff? Why, why is it that you chose to do it? Uh, the ultimate goal, and it's actually uh, somewhat of a personal mission for our company, um, the CEO of our company, her father actually has a pacemaker and he's had to uh, undergo multiple surgeries due to this malfunctioning device. So the ultimate goal was really to work with these manufacturers and hopefully, um, hopefully bring about some real positive change and have a secure methodology in place and um, get these devices up to scratch. A worthy goal indeed. Barnaby Jack, a very jet-lagged Barnaby Jack, thank you very much for joining us on Risky Business. Thanks, Patrick.